Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. If you're a guest with us, this is our we're, we're celebrating Advent here at Damascus Road. Uh, Advent means to come and to wait. It's it's the last song that we sang there. The uh, your kingdom come, let heaven come to earth. It's this truth that knowing that Jesus came once, Christmas, he's going to come again, Advent. And, and so we, uh, we celebrate Christmas and we enjoy the fact that Jesus chose to come once, but we long for the coming of Jesus a second time. And so we are in our fourth week of that. Each week has a response and an emotion that's connected to it. The first is hope. And the second is peace. Last week we looked at joy. And this week we're going to look at love. And kind of the quintessential love verse in the Bible is one that you'll see in the end zone today if you watch the Packers. Uh, John three sixteen and 17. So why don't you stand with me? Let me read that and then I will pray and we will trust God to do His thing here today. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but would have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit who guides, who teaches, who directs us to Jesus, who loves us well. We're dependent on Him today. God, I thank You for each person who walked in these doors. God, I know that You love them. I know that You think of them, that You have plans and purposes for them. And God, we just want to help them uh, take that next step today, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, for your glory and God for their joy. And so would you accomplish these things in our midst? We'll thank you for them in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So we have taken this idea of Advent, which uh, probably some of you are familiar with, but some of you aren't. And we decided to use a tool uh, that's based on the book and the movie, The Christmas Carol. Uh, the main character in The Christmas Carol is a guy by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge. And I told you that Scrooge, the movie Scrooge, as I understood it, was kind of a mainstay in my house growing up. It's the story of a man who uh, was deeply committed to financial pursuit. And he is a terrible celebrator of Christmas. And so his financial partner passes away, Jacob Marley, and Marley visits him on Christmas Eve to let him know that three spirits, three ghosts, are going to uh, visit him and help him understand how to celebrate well, help him understand uh, what Christmas really means and uh, how he can respond well. And so the ghost of Christmas past came, and we talked about hope in spite of our past. The ghost of Christmas present came, and we talked about peace in the present. The ghost of Christmas yet to come shows up, and we talked about joy for the future And then the movie ends uh, with Scrooge dancing through the streets and and, uh, forgiving debt. And uh, I was thinking this week about this book and this movie, Christmas, The Christmas Carol. And it's it's kind of an interesting cultural phenomenon in that almost everybody has seen some version of it, whether it's Mickey Mouse or a Muppet or some actor that you've never heard of, uh, and they're playing this phenomenal character developed by Charles Dickens. And I started to think to myself, you know, why do certain things stick? Why do certain things kind of stick 
and resonate in the cultural mind and soul uh, generationally. Uh, And and I'll tell you my theory on it, uh, if you'd like to hear it. And let's just be honest, even if you don't want to hear it, I'm going to give it to you. So uh, here it is. Um, I think the story portrays that really messed up people can change. I think that's why we like it. Uh, I remember in college, I went through a philosophy class and I was reading guys like David Hume and Friedrich Nietzsche and and they're basically, if you boil it all down here's their version Uh, you are born broken you live broken, you die broken no one's coming, nothing changes and I remember thinking to myself even if that's true right? that's the worst version of reality, I, I don't want that to be true, I don't want that to be the case I want to know, I want to believe that change is possible For me, I want to be a better man, I want to be a better husband, I want to be a better daddy, I want to be a better preacher, a better pastor, I want to be a a better person. And if there's no way for me to do that, what's really the point? I want our city to be a better city. I want it to be kinder. I want it to be more equal. I want it to be more just. I want it to be more generous. And I want our world to be a better world. I want to stop flipping on the news and seeing yet another incident, yet another war, yet another dictator. I want to believe that change is possible. And the reason that Scrooge resonates with me is because the story is of a guy who you hate at the beginning, right? You don't like this guy. He's a terrible guy. He needs to change. And the story is that he can. Is that he can. And so today, I want to take this idea of love and this idea of change. And as we have the last four weeks, I want to try to smash them together and see what the Holy Spirit can do. And so let's think about this idea of change. The first question with change is just, is it possible? And because of Jesus and because of the gospel, the answer to that is what? Yes, absolutely it is. That's really the reason, guys, that we do Damascus Road. Because we believe that people can change and we, because we believe that Jesus changes people. The rest is just window dressing, to be completely honest with you. It's the fundamental reason that we want Damascus Road to exist, so that people from all walks of life, from all past, experiencing all presence, to be able to come in this room, hear from the Holy Spirit, hear that they can be changed, hear that Jesus is the way they can be changed, to walk in one way and to walk out different. That's what we want. It's what we want. And so we believe that change is possible. But the question is, is change necessary? And you say, you just went through this whole ordeal of talking about how you believe that, that change is possible and all this kind of thing. What do you mean, is change necessary? Here's the reason that I say that. Uh, kind of the, the, the subtitle of the movie Scrooge or The Christmas Carol is that this is a guy who everybody knows needs to change, but it took not one, not two, not three, four ghosts to convince him. I mean, think about that. Like if one ghost shows up and is like, yo, Tim, here's the deal. You're a schmuck. I'm like, uh, I'm going to have to think about this for a little bit. Scrooge gets invited by, or gets, uh, you know, a visit from four ghosts. And finally, uh, after the third ghost, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. And after the fourth, we, we see this change. And so here's what I know. Uh, most of us... Uh, don't think about the idea of change. We, we don't think about that we need to change, and we certainly don't think about necessarily what we need to change in anything past a fleeting moment. And here's the reason that I believe. Uh, it's what I call everyone gets a trophy culture. When I played, I was telling Wes, um, I played uh, baseball growing up, and I was a member of 
Rotary. That was our that was our team. And I was a pitcher, and we made it to the championship game, and we paid we we played Bueller's, which was the grocery store. And uh and we lost in the championship game. And I told Wes, I vividly remember watching Jamie Blickensturfer go up with his dumb Bueller's t-shirt on, right? And getting a trophy. And do you know what I went to the car with? Nothing. Because I lost. My son, however, plays soccer. And do you know what my son gets almost every time he plays anything? Something. A medal, a trophy, uh, right? We, we have this culture right now where I'm okay, you're okay, right? Uh, I mean, when Saturday Night Live is creating a character based on this phenomenon, you know it's kind of central to like, Like, gosh darn it, people like me. And we convince ourselves of that. And to be honest with you, we do that in church too, don't we? Right? We don't want people to feel bad. We don't want people to feel condemned. We don't want people to feel guilty. We want people to come in and feel uplifted and encouraged. And although that's all well and good, here's the problem with it. What that ends up creating is a group of people who go, what do I need to change? What do I need to change? We're just like Scrooge. We have to be convinced that we need to change. And sometimes it takes lots and lots and lots and lots of evidence before we'll finally go, you know what, I'll think about that. And so I want you to see something in Romans chapter 8. It'll be on the screen behind me. But I want you to see how Paul talks about our experience once God saves us. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. 29 will be on the screen. Just listen to 28. Romans 8 and verse 29 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predestined us to be what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's what I need you to understand. God planned and plans to save you. You know that? Before God created the earth, before the foundations of the earth, God's plan was always to redeem a people. God's plan was always, His purpose was always, His heart was always for redemption, for salvation, for transformation, right? God planned to do that. And when God planned to save you, He planned to change you. He planned to change you, and He didn't plan to change you into something. He planned to change you like someone, And that someone's name is Jesus. And so for most of us, if I say, do you think that you need to change, we generally compare ourselves among ourselves. And so I say, do I need to change more than Melissa? Maybe. Maybe not. But if I were to say to you, God's plan in saving you was to make you like Jesus, that puts a little different slant on it, doesn't it? How close are you and I to being like Jesus? And what level of change would need to happen in my life in order for me, according to the plans and purposes of God, to look more like Jesus, I would say, quite a bit, quite a bit would need to take place. And so what I want to do today is I just want to give you two things to think about. One is I want you, I want to give you some real practical uh, planning to change. How do we plan to change? And then second, I want to ask you to change how you think about change. Planning to change and changing how you think about change. And if you can say that 10 times fast, we'll give you an Advent CD, all right? Planning, planning to change. Okay, are you ready? If you're taking notes, this is the spot for you to hop in. There are 
certain things uh, that when God saves us, he changes us instantly. I talk to friends who have had struggles with uh, substance, uh, who've had struggles in recovery, and sometimes the story is God saved me and then took the desire from me. Just gone. One day, an addict. The next day, recovering, recovered, however you want to say. It's not always the case, but there are times. I've, met, I've run into people who I had an enormous temper, and when God saved me, he just changed me, just like that. There are other things that God's changing is, listen, now that I've saved you, stop it or start it, right? Now, man, now that I've saved you, love is kind of an important thing. Now that I've saved you, compassion is an important thing. That's kind of a non-negotiable of being a Christian. And so sometimes he just, boom, changes us. Sometimes he says, I want you to stop or I want you to start. But the majority of the time that we think about change or we see change in the Bible, it's incremental. It's incremental and it's over an extended period of time. I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says this, And we all with an unveiled face behold the glory of God and are being transformed into the same image. Whose image is that? Jesus' image from one degree of glory to another. How many of you guys have ever seen a sundial? What is it? A sundial doesn't just... Whoof. A sundial is incremental. And transformation in the Christian life, change in the Christian life, is being changed from one glory to another. It's sometimes slow and oftentimes painful. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's quick. But most of the time, sanctification is the big church word that we use. Change happens over time and from one degree to another. And so how I want you to think about this is positioning yourself to be changed in a couple different ways. Are you still with me? The first way is to change from a manufacturing mindset to an agricultural mindset. Okay? In America, we all are kind of on the heels of a manufacturing culture. And in a manufacturing culture, we make stuff, don't we? We make cars. We make families. We make money. We make love, right? We make it. And it's either or. It's, it's yes or no. It's black or white. It's light or dark. Uh, the problem with that is that you don't often make change. You, you grow change. You plant change. You invest in change. And it's generally slow. And so I want you to move away from make an instant and microwave and toward planting and sowing and reaping. And I want you to begin to think about this idea of how do I invest in a way that allows God to work most mightily in my transformation. That allows God to work most mightily in my transformation. And here's how I would like you to do it. I want you to think about praying and planning. Praying and planning. Most people that I know do one of those two things well. We pray really, really well. But we don't plan. We pray well, but we don't plan well. And then there's other people that I know and they're generally type A and drink lots of caffeine, and they plan really well, but they don't pray. I ran into a pastor one time, and he was telling me about all the things that they were doing at his church, and he says to me, the reason that we're doing all of these things is because we asked God to do, and he laid out a long list of things. And so we prayed, and then we planned for him to answer. 
You see, believing that God is going to answer your prayer isn't just intellectual and theological or emotional. It's also actionable. God, I want you to change my marriage. I'm praying that. I just don't want to have to do anything. God, I want you to change my finances, but I'm not going to make a budget. I'm not, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to plan. I'm just going to pray and like a genie, right? You're just going to make it so. Investing in change in your life is to pray that God will change you, knowing that it's possible, knowing that it's necessary, knowing that you need probably somebody to do it for you, and then planning that that's at the heart of God, that God wants to change you, wants to transform you to look more like Jesus. And so let me give you a couple things that you can do to plan well, and a couple things that I'm trying to do to plan well for God to change me as I head in to 2015. All right? First off, I sat down at my computer and I have four categories of things that I'm trying to do in the next year. The first is that I wrote down the names of people that I want to leave a legacy with. The names of people that I want to leave a legacy with. Now what I find is that when I think about leaving a legacy, I generally think about it as something really big and really broad and really, really wide. But in reality, when I started writing down the names, not that I want to, but that I have to leave a legacy with, meaning it's, I'm desperate to do it. Do you know what happened to my list? It shrunk. And it starts with Ashley, my wife, Noah, my son, Emma, my daughter, Isaiah, my son, my extended family, my friends, and the people that God gives me the opportunity specifically to invest in, which meant that my list ended up not being about 300 people, it ended up being about 15 people. And I wrote them down, and I started to pray over each one of those names. And so I'm praying for my wife, I'm praying for my sons, I'm praying for my daughter, I'm praying for my friends, I'm praying for you. I don't get the opportunity to uh, direct specifically in many of you, but the ones that I do get the opportunity to invest in, I'm, I'm praying for those people, and I'm making them central, and I'm planning to pray for them and to invest in them. The second thing that I do is that I write out my priorities. I write out my priorities, and here's my priorities. God, my wife, my kids, my friends, my ministry, or my work. And I take that list of people, and I see if who I want to leave a legacy with and who are my priorities jive, right? If, they, if, it, if it matches. And what it does is it puts me in a position where I'm conscious of and intentional about planning to steward those things well. And so people and priorities. And then I sat down and I make a measurable plan of two things. One, where I currently am. And so I sat down and I said, this is my look in the mirror, straight up evaluation of my relationship to my wife right now. And I wrote it down. I wrote it down, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I said with Noah, what, what, how's Noah doing? How's my relationship with Noah doing? And I, this, is, this is my current reality. And then you know what I did? I wrote down what I want it to be. I prayed through it, and I said, this is what I want my marriage to look like. This is what I want my relationship to my boys to look like. This is what I want my friends to think about me. This is what I want Damascus Road Church to know about me. And I write down in a measurable way where I am in three to five things that I want to do in the upcoming year, praying and planning that God will transform, not them, not you, me, in them. And then the last thing that I do, okay, so people, 
priorities, plan, and then number four is I find a partner. A lot of you guys are going to the new year, you're going to say, doggone it, this is the year that I'm going to get ripped. <laughs> and you're going to go to a gym, probably Planet Fitness, because they give you pizza on Fridays, which is a little antithetical, but who's, who's worrying about that, right? And you're going to walk into that gym January 1 with a thousand other people all in brand new workout gear, and you're going to make it to February. And then you're going to stop. Do you know what is the primary determiner of somebody's success when they say that they're going to get healthy? What is it? It's a workout partner. Do you know that your spiritual health, your, your, your spiritual transformation is, is the exact same? And so I have right now a four-page document that I'm sending to three men. And once a month, they're going to look at that list, and they're going to look at my life, and they're going to go, you got any disparity in here? And they're going to pray for me, and they're going to be straight with me, and they're going to pray and plan with me that God would change me over the coming years so that I don't get to the end of another year and go, yeah, I think it went all right. I don't know. I want to know. Because central to my faith is the belief that God wants to change me to look like Jesus. And I want that. And I want it not in a general, ethereal way. I want it in a practical way that blesses the people around me. Not everyone around me. These people around me. Because at the end of my life, listen, I want you to like me. I do. I'm not going to lie. I want you to like me. I want you to say, man, Tim was a good guy. And one out of five times, his messages were pretty good, right? But listen to me. I need my son to say, Daddy loved me well. I respected him. He worked hard. I could trust him. He made me a priority. I need that. I need my wife to say, no, he wasn't perfect but he tried to love me like Jesus. He sacrificed himself. He provided well. He protected us. He led me and taught me and cared for me and he loved me. And listen, if I get to the end of my life and you say, yeah, we liked him and my wife can't answer those things in the affirmative, I lose. And so I'm planning, I'm planning in a really tangible way, in a communal way for God to change me because I know that's what he wants to do. Because I know that it's possible. Because I know that it's necessary. And because I know that I can't do it on my own. I can't do it on my own. The other thing that I want you to think about here is I want you to change the way that you think about change. Okay? Change the way that you think about change. Here's what we generally think of when we think about changing. We're going to change what we do. Right? I'm going to get my finances order. So I am going to get a budget. And how long does that budget normally last? Until the sale, right? <laughs> That's how long it lasts. Why is that? Because change isn't about what you do, it's about what you love. The reason that the budget doesn't work is because you can put the numbers together however you want, but if you love that feeling that you get when you buy something new, budget's going to lose. If you love that feeling that you get when someone says, wow, you look really nice today, or wow, that's a nice car, or wow, he must be really successful. If you love those things what you do around your ordering of your finances is not going to matter. Change is about what you love. And most of us believe wrongly that you simply love what you love. 
You love what you love. I was a youth pastor for a couple years in Indiana, and I would sit across from teenage girls who were dating categorical morons. And I would lay out for them the reason that their boyfriend was a moron, and they wouldn't argue with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the deal, Pastor Tim. I, I love him, right? And that's actually the reason that I don't have any hair. I ripped it all out. <laughs> I ripped it all completely out. I mean, you should have seen how long my hair was before I became a youth pastor. And then just incrementally, just patches, gone. Just Here's the thing. Here's the thing about, about love. The Bible teaches us that you can choose what you love. Colossians 3 and verse 1. Set your affections on things above. Not sit in a room and pray, God, help me to feel in love with things above. No, set them. Choose what you love. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, Jesus is talking about money. and He says, where your treasure is, where the investment is, that's where your what will be. Your heart. You know, the organ of love. In other words, the Bible says that you can choose what you love and that you'll love what you invest in. And so I eventually started saying to those teenage girls who would say, but I love him, Pastor Tim. I'd say, first of all, look, the whole left side of my head is completely bald because of you. All right? And I don't want to go into the right side, and so here's what you need to understand. You can choose to love somebody else by investing in somebody else. And so stop hanging out with that knucklehead before I kill both of you and end up in jail, all right? That's right. And all, all the moms in the house said, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, affections follow investment. I can choose what I love. And listen, when I choose to love well, my life is changed by it. And so go back to John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that it changed his behavior. It didn't change his behavior. It dictated his behavior, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so God loves me and empowers me to change what I love. And the more that I grow in love for God, what happens to my priorities? They change. The more that I grow in love with God, what happens to my character? It changes. What happens to my finances? They change. What happens to my relationships? They change. Why? Because I changed what I love. Away from peace and comfort and me, me, me to God. And the reason that the Christian life and transformation in it is incremental is because it's a redefining of love and a redistributing of love. And here's another little secret for you. The reason that change is painful isn't because you change what you do. It's because you change what you love. And stopping to love something is incredibly hard and incredibly painful. And so the Christian life isn't, this is incredibly important, stop doing these things and do these things. That's called religion. The Christian life is, God loves you. He calls you to love Him. And as you love Him and grow in your love for Him and deepen in your love for Him, that's going to change everything. It's going to change everything. Last week I introduced you to a guy by the name of Isaac Watts, the father of hymns. Street, street name. 
this week I want to introduce you to a guy by the name of John Newton. John Newton was born July 24, 1725 to the mother. His mother was a, a deeply religious woman and his father was not. I've heard that story before, right? And his father was a commander of a merchant ship in the Mediterranean. At 11, Newton goes off and starts to sail around with his father. His father retires and Newton goes to work for a slave trade ship. And becomes a servant of the captain on it. Experiencing a lot of abuse and seeing a lot of horrific things as you might expect. A couple years into that he is rescued out of servitude on the slave ship by one of his father's former associates. And he does the only thing that you would think he wouldn't want to do. You would think you get out of that situation and you go become an accountant, right? Newton becomes the captain of his own slave ship. Becomes the captain of his own slave ship. And in his many, many writings, he talks about what would happen in his line of work. He says, ships would make the first leg of their voyage from England nearly empty, and they would anchor off of the African coast. Their tribal chiefs would deliver to the European stockades full of men and women captured in raids and wars against other tribes. Let me say that in common language. Kidnapped or POWs. No No one's there, you know, because they want to be. Buyers then would select the finest specimen which would be bartered for weapons, ammunition, metal, liquor, trinkets, and cloth. Then the captives would be loaded aboard, packed for sailing. They would be chained below to prevent suicides, laid side by side to save space, row after row, one after another, until the vessel was laden with as many as 600 units of human cargo. Some of his other writings, he talks about that sometimes in one part of the ship, disease would pop up. And rather than having it get contagious and ruining all of his inventory, he would just throw them overboard. One night, as Newton is coming back to England with a ship full of cargo, he comes across a storm that he believes he's not going to be able to steer his way through. And he experiences what he would later call the great deliverance. In fact, he says that he yelled at the top of his lungs, Lord, have mercy on us! And after the storm began to subside, he went back to his cabin and began to think about the grace that had been afforded to him. And it was something that just began to get into his mind and into his gut and into his head. And it began to change the way that he thought. He stayed a slave ship captain for a while, but over time, as grace began to take effect in his life, he could no longer continue to do what he had been doing. And so he resigned and did what anyone would do. He became an Anglican pastor. He became an Anglican pastor. And as he began to minister, he got connected to a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. He wrote a lot of the documents that led to the abolition of the practice of slavery in Britain. He spent the last 43 years of his life preaching the gospel of grace to anyone who would listen. At the end of his life, Newton is known to have said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember these two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is my great Savior. On John Newton's tombstone, it reads this. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. You know what it could have just said on his tombstone? Changed. Changed. 
if you read any of John Newton's writings, and I would challenge you to do so, you'll find a man who is deeply enamored with the love of God. A man who regularly committed himself to look into the love and grace of God, knowing what he had once been. And day after day, he committed himself to understand the love of God, to understand the grace of God. And as he understood the love of God, he began to fall in love with God. And as he fell in love with God, it changed his life. You see, the tried and true formula through the gospel for change, guys, is not that you get a better list. It's not that you go to places you wouldn't otherwise go or read things that you wouldn't otherwise read. It's the day after day, morning after morning, night after night, throw yourself headlong on the grace of God. To look squarely into the grace of God and believe a simple truth that many of us learned when we were kids. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I'm changed when I believe that God loves me even though I'm not lovely. I'm changed when I believe that God gives me his grace when I don't deserve any of it. When I look into that day after day and commit myself to that day after day, I fall in love with God. And as I fall in love with God, inferior loves fall away. And as inferior loves fall away and my love for God deepens, my life is changed a degree at a time. One glory after another. This Christmas season, there's lots of things that you're going to be thinking about, lots of experiences that you have, lots of people that you're going to run into. I just want to remind you or tell you maybe for the first time, Jesus loves you. God loves you. And God wants a relationship with you. And God has plans and purposes that are for your blessing and for your joy and for his glory. And he'll never stop pursuing that, whether you're on a ship in a sea, at work in Madison or wherever it might take you. The gift of change is the gift of grace. And I pray today for me and for you that this Christmas season you'll be reminded deeply of that and that God will change you at your very core. Stand with me. couple ways that I'd like you to just continue to process is one just in the belief that when we pray God hears us. You don't have to say the right words or the right incantation. You can just start talking where you are. If you want someone to do that with you, we will have folks in the back of the room to my left to your right who would love to meet you back there. But you don't need to pray with them. You can just talk to God right where you are. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can come up and We can remind ourselves of the love of God as exhibited on the cross through communion. I encourage you to do that. And then the third thing that we do is we sing. And we sing in response to a God who loves us to communicate that we we love Him too. Pray with me. God, I thank You that, uh, that You love me. God, I thank You that You love me better than anyone has ever loved me. Thank You that Your love is trustworthy, that it's unconditional, that it led to your action that was sacrificial and that I can bank my eternity on it. God, I thank you that you can never love me more because you love me perfectly and you will never love me less. God, as I look into who you are and into how you love me, I pray, God, that you'll help me 
to not love things that are inferior to you, but to bask in your grace, in your mercy, in your friendship, and in your love. And I pray that as you do, you will change me to look more like Jesus. For the blessing of those around me, for the glory of your name, for the joy of my soul. I pray all these things in the good and wonderful and beautiful loving name of Jesus. Amen.